The majority of the celebs that I work with are definitely pretty interesting people. I'd say the most colorful may have been Matthew McConaughey, and I've worked with him a few times, and he never fails to deliver in his、uh, worldview and his humor and just his love of life, I guess. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It's no secret that print media have had a rough go of it most of this century. The internet made it extremely difficult for anyone sticking to their old school guns to be able to survive. The result has been. The steady downhill slide of newspapers, replaced by digital versions of their own making, as well as national and local television channels providing their own web and in-app content, the number of newspapers in the U.S. has shrunk by more than 2,000 since 2004. We just don't get ink smudges on our fingers like we once did. But magazines have somehow managed to survive and thrive. In the digital era, even with competing online content, there are more than 7,400 print magazines available in the U.S. A number that has remained fairly steady for more than a decade. It is into this changing media scene that Brennan Matthews found himself launching a new magazine in early 2018. The result, Root Magazine, is now in its fifth year of bi-monthly publication. Our guest today is Brennan Matthews, an editor, writer, and publisher whose bona fides could almost fill a magazine. Brennan, the tagline on each cover heralds Root as the magazine that celebrates road travel, vintage Americana, and Route 66. What motivated you to enter a niche that already finds many travel-related publications? Um, you know, actually, I can't think of another magazine on the market that actually focuses on the subject matter that we do. You know, Route 66, classic Americana,、uh, small town America, especially telling the stories that we do in an investigative nature that is very people focused. So for us, we really looked and seen what was missing, what was lacking, what we wanted to buy, what we wanted to subscribe to, and it just wasn't there.、Um, We don't really see ourselves as a travel magazine, as much as a pop culture magazine that focuses heavily on classic Americana. And of course, there's no better picture of that than Route 66. But we sort of, I mean, we launched Route as an answer to, I suppose, as many entrepreneurs have over the years, to answering a problem that we had, and that's we wanted a magazine like Route, and there was none available. Before Root, you were editor in chief of Destination Magazine. How did that stint help you for the current adventure? Yeah, I mean, that was very much a precursor, right? So, Destination Magazine was an African, so a continental magazine. Root is as well, mostly just U.S.,、uh, not continental. Root is U.S., where Destination was continental, so it was in a lot of countries in the continent, especially in East Africa. But a lot of the the aspects, you know, working with writers, photographers, advertisers, printers, designers, celebrity publicists, all of those things really prepared us to to launch Root because it's really the same animal. It's just a different packaging. How is it then that you wound up in Toronto as publisher of a magazine with a U.S. focus? 
Yeah. Um, so we wanted a change after around six years of being editor-in-chief with Destination Magazine. And I wasn't really sure what that change looked like. I just know, knew that I wanted to get out of Africa for a little while. So we were in talks with Condé Nast about Vanity Fair and GQ and with uh, Hearst Publications about Esquire. So I actually went over to New York initially, and I was in meetings with both of those major companies, and we were considering taking on any number of senior editor roles with those iconic publications. But my family didn't really fancy living in New York. They wanted somewhere a bit quieter, less chaotic. So because of our Canadian connection, we decided to shift north a bit and come up to Toronto. And um, I stayed on as editor-in-chief with Ruth for probably another six months while I was also doing some uh, consulting work with other Canadian magazines that were trying to launch into the market as well, into the Canadian-American markets. And then we just weren't sure what we were going to do. So we just sort of um, entered into that stage, if you will, of, of, of analyzing which direction we wanted to head. Did we stay, want, want to stay with magazines? Toronto was a great location then. New York was a great location then. Or did we want to do something totally different? But until we figured that out, Toronto just seemed like a, a good option. Popping onto potential readers' radar is no small task when there are so many choices available. What have you done to get distribution, and how do you stand out on magazine stands? How do you promote the magazine, and who's your target market? Yeah, so distribution is always uh, one of the first things that you take care of before you ever wrap a magazine up, um, before you ever even start publishing. You make sure that you have the channels in place for us, and this is uh, different than a lot of smaller magazines, I guess. We were focusing on a national footprint right away. So there are two major distributors throughout America that do magazines, and we work with one of those. And they make sure that we're in all the Barnes & Noble and a lot of the books, Books A Million and other places. Then in addition, we reached out to... Um, you know, a lot of the smaller gift shops or Route 66 motels that had gift shops attached to them to also distribute the magazine. But distribution is something that we took care of very early on. They weren't really sure because they were like, okay, there's a lot of travel magazines or Route 66 topics out there, be it books or guides or newsletters or not as many magazines, but still Route 66 focused things. So how are you going to compete on the market? because there's a cost factor for them as well, but we convinced them. And the interesting thing is they really look at success as being anything selling over 20%. And uh, our very first issue sold over 80%. So they were just ecstatic, and Root was off to the races at that point. It, it seems like it's kind of cutthroat out there. I've, I've seen your magazine at Barnes & Noble before, and there's a lot of other magazines all vying for the reader's eye, and they, they may uh, stand out about two inches or so if they've got them kind of cascaded across the shelf, <laughs> but, but it's the ones that have the full front facing. You, you wonder, how did they get that? I mean, is it like in the supermarket where you pay to play and all the big brands get all the, the nice spots on the shelf and everybody else takes the crumbs? Yeah, I mean, anyone who has a designated spot in the very front or on the, you know, on the, 
not the side aisles, if you will, where they might have their selections. Um, all of that is paid for. That that's very expensive space, and that's why you see generally a lot of the big corporates will have paid for that. For us, we have people that will go into the stores across the country to make sure that our visibility is good. As a national magazine, of course, it's very difficult. There's a lot of stores. We don't have people everywhere. But when a magazine is doing well, then you'll see a lot of its competitors either try to hide it when their own people go out to the stores, or you'll see them trying to put themselves right beside you so that when readers come to find, let's say in this case, Root, they're going to see the other magazine as well. And so, you know, it's an opportunistic buy. Oh, I want to grab Root, but oh, what's this one? Then they grab that too. So it is cutthroat. And as you said, there are so many titles, and not just on the shelves, but there's regional titles, there's city titles, and we're in hotel rooms uh, up and down Route 66 as well. And so we're also vying to work with good hotels and venues, iconic Route 66 venues, um, luxury boutique hotels like 21C Museum or Cold Cord in Oklahoma City, um, and so on. So for us, it's really about just making sure that we have a wide footprint and that we have a good relationship with the places where the magazine is being distributed so that they really realize the value of having our magazine, both monetarily, but also, of course, they value the content and they actually want to support us and make sure that we're visible and that we succeed. Your format is a blend of long-form journalism, short features, and in-depth interviews with A-list celebrities. How and why did you come to favor this type of format? And what do these A-listers bring to the table regarding Root Magazine's focus? You know, it's interesting because we had them with Destination as well in every issue, um, a lot more than we do with Root, as in two or three interviews in each issue where we just have one in Root. And we would have people ask, you know, what does this have to do with African travel or African issues? We have the same thing asked periodically by readers for Root as well. What does this have to do with Route 66? The reality, though, is we're not a Route 66 magazine. We're not a travel magazine. We're a pop culture magazine that focuses on classic Americana, Route 66, and really small town stories. So celebs are famous actors and musicians who readers, you know, they've connected to personally. They represent the soundtrack of many people's lives. So our intimate tone and conversational style that make up our interviews, that really it's what makes them really unique. We go a lot deeper and more personal than most other interviews, and we tell, try to tell the full story of their journey as people and as professionals, musicians or actors. And so, you know, our readers are already connected to that music. They're already connected to those TV shows. They're already connected to those movies. And so what this allows them to do is connect on a more human level with iconic talent. You know, they represent classic Americana entertainment. So for us, they fit very much in with all of the stories that we're telling. We're a pop culture magazine, not a travel one. And since they represent classic entertainment, it's just a nice blend that goes along with all the stories of the people from Route 66 who live along the road and operate and have businesses and stories to tell of their own. Well, two of the ones that I've enjoyed the most from the, your first five years were uh, uh, Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad fame, which necessarily had a lot of scenes filmed on Route 66. Mm-hmm. And then Jackson Brown, who wrote the first half of one of the most memorable 
pop songs from the last 50 years, uh, that being Take It Easy. And of course, if you've ever been through Winslow, Arizona, you know you have to go stand on the corner. How did those interviews come about? Uh, Brian actually came up pretty quickly. So basically how it works is, I've, well, I've worked in that space for a long time. So I know a lot of celebrities, and so I've worked with a lot of people. And you, it's a big industry, small world. So you develop a reputation. People like your work. They like working with you, or they don't. And so that goes around. And luckily, I've tended to have great interviews with good people, and they've gone well. But you also get to know all the celebrity publicists, managers, and agents, sort of the gatekeepers, if you will. And you build those relationships very carefully as well. And so Brian, I had known his uh, publicist, Jody for a long time, and she's very passionate about Brian, and Brian's passionate about Route 66. So that was a really logical one. And so we got that one put together pretty quickly. Jackson Brown, on the other hand, took around two years of really trying to work with Jackson to, to get him into the magazine. Jackson's a very private person. He's also, um, the, some, some celebs won't do anything unless they connect it to a project, and others just love a great conversation or media. Jackson had a new album coming out when we did him last year, and so that was really timing is everything, and so that was really key with Jackson. Both those interviews were great. I spent a lot of time with Brian. I spent a lot more with Jackson. Jackson and I were together four or five, six times working on that piece. And it was the longest article we've ever done in period, not just celebrity interview, but articles, 10 pages long. We normally wouldn't dedicate that much time to any article, but Jackson's story is just so Americana, whether it's with the Eagles or whether it's Winslow or whether it's with Flagstaff or whether it's with Take It Easier. Um, but it was just a story that we felt nobody else had told to the, to the depth that we had planned to. And yeah, we had a great time. But do people really have the time and desire to read 2,500 or more words on any given subject? I mean, isn't this the TikTok age where short attention span theater is the soup du jour? I think there's certainly a category of people that fall into that. But I think that there's still a lot of people that prefer longer form journalism. You know, longer form journalism, whether it's interviews that dive into deeper questions and more thought-provoking discussion or whether it's a long-form article that really takes the time and the care to really weave out a person, a place's journey and history. I think that there's a lot of people that really appreciate that. That's one of the things about that makes us so different is I think we really value telling the story and the people and the places, the history, the culture, all the players, that is the story. And so these short little flashes that you're seeing typically online on a lot of the digital media, the websites and the online stories, they don't really delve too deeply into what needs to be told in order to really present a full story. I think there's a whole audience out there. And it's not just the baby boomers. It's not just the older folks. I think a lot of younger people, depending how they've been raised, whether it's, you know, with a shorter attention span and um, digesting a ton of information or with more of a reading culture and more of a nurturing of the information. 
I think that even younger people, depending how they're raised, school or at home, will appreciate longer form stories too. So I think there's a big audience out there for it that are hungry to know more. What is it about road tripping that makes it the quintessential American pastime? What do we, as well as all of our international guests here, hope to achieve in the process? I mean, is this just a post-World War II contrivance that has evolved into warm, nostalgic, throwback Thursday fuzzies? I don't think so. I think that road tripping allows people to step away from the norm. It allows people to step away from their routine. I think that we love routine, but routine at times can get a bit monotonous and a bit mundane. And I think that road tripping allows you to get out there and not necessarily have that plan, not know what's around every corner. You know, I think it's internally inside of every man and woman to want to explore and want to discover. And we live in in an age where discovery is a click away, you know. This allows people to get away from their computers, to get away from quick information searches, and to actually get out and discover for themselves. Root Magazine is the perfect example of how magazines can be a cottage industry. Uh, It's not exactly like you have swank offices in a Toronto skyscraper. This is a mom-and-pop business run from home, and you are an entrepreneur. Everyone who works, writes, photographs for you does so remotely, including layout and social media posts. You have a contract printer in the U.S. who handles that and distribution. Literally, anyone with the right business plan could do this, too. What barriers to entry, if any, did you find? You know, um, it's funny because I think there is a perception that small to medium-sized enterprise is mom, pa, but the that's not really how we see ourselves. Um, actually, that's probably a big difference between us and what people historically have done um, with Route 66 focused media and really a lot of businesses along Route 66. We are, see ourselves as a magazine and a business more through a corporate lens. Um, and that isn't to take away from Manta because I think that there's a place for it. I think that that is very much a a model that endears itself to travelers of Route 66. Just for us, we tend to uh, do everything very strategically and through very much a corporate lens. We never launched the magazine off the cuff. We had a very solid business plan in place. We checked all the boxes as we went. We did our research. Who are the best distributors? Who do we want to work with? We never went with whoever took us. We actually had long conversations with each of them, um, uh, printing paper, quality, uh, binding, um, even where we wanted the magazine to be, which hotel partners we wanted to have. I mean, we looked into everything. I had like a stack from printers. We probably interviewed probably 25 different printers before we decided on which one we're going to go with which is in um, St. Louis. So we really, really did our homework, made a lot of decisions that were very much based on research. And we never just went, this isn't a, um, a passion project. It's not a something that we had ambition for, or a dream of. I've had people ask me that, say, oh, you guys had a dream. We didn't, we didn't. 
what we had was a business idea that would meet a need that we personally felt and that we assumed that others also felt if we felt it as well. And so we really say who are the best people to bring on to the team. We don't look for people who are passionate about Route 66. We look for people who are passionate about storytelling and writing. And then we make sure that they get very passionate about the subject matter as well, which they all do because it's such a wonderful, passionate subject because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with people's lives and, and people's journeys. And so any writer who loves storytelling can't help but get passionate themselves about the topic that they're writing about. That's our focus. Route 66 was not our focus in the conventional way that it's been with a Route 66 publication or Route 66-focused business, for that matter. As far as barriers, I don't think that there were many barriers. What there were, hmm, I think that... The main obstacle that we found was that many people who were associated with Route 66 on a regular basis, and I don't mean regular um, road travelers, you know, domestic or international. I mean people associated with media or tourism. Those people really assumed that there was one model, and that was the mom-pa model or your passion project model. And so I think that trying to get people to understand that we were coming at this from a much more high quality model, like we care about the paper, we care about the photography, we care about the depth and um, the accuracy of the stories. We care about the distribution. We care about making sure that Route 66 and all of our stories are being discovered by people, not just what we call roadies, so people that are already passionate about Route 66, but introducing Route 66 and the opportunities of travel that will benefit these businesses and towns that live in, and work and depend on the mother road um, that will also benefit them. So we wanted new people to get reached, people that weren't really aware of Route 66, that weren't aware of the Great American Road Trip and didn't really care, to be honest with you. Uh, but that were low-hanging fruit in the sense of they loved great stories and they loved classic Americana. And so by introducing them to Root Magazine and a magazine that was higher caliber and higher quality, that we'd also, as such, provide a really positive perspective of Route 66. Not just old rundown towns, not just old billboards, not just something that's faded, but something that is more than worth their while to get out and explore and discover. And that was really something that we were really aiming to do with the magazine, not just speak to a, an existing audience, but to create a new audience. The fact that you are into your fifth year says that you have what it takes to be a long hauler in the field, but with individual copies costing only six bucks a piece at retail, how do you make any money? I mean, I'm not going to ask you for your tax return, but... Is there enough profit in this business to keep a family going? There is. We're never going to be wealthy publishing a single bi-monthly title. That's for sure. But we are blessed with a great subscriber base. Um, we have a good audience that buy single issues every every time they come out from BNN and other distributors. 
And we have amazing advertising partners. And so, you know what? We're just so blessed. We're so blessed. We love what we do. We love the people we work with. There is enough for us to actually put food on the table and pay our mortgage. We're never going to get wealthy from this, but that's okay. That's not the purpose anyhow. You have to ask the question about the 800-pound gorilla in the living room. How did COVID affect the magazine? What did you do to stay ahead of it? Magazines nationwide, interestingly enough, increased in their subscriber numbers over the COVID period. And so did we. I think a lot of people had nothing to do. They stayed home, of course, because COVID trapped people in their homes. And so when people couldn't get out to travel, they wanted the next best thing. They would subscribe to the magazines or bought books that they loved. And so we did really well with that. And so we were grateful for that. However, we did get hit hard with advertiser revenue. And for any magazine, that's a major thing. But you know what? The, the reality is, like I said, we weren't really looking to get wealthy from publishing a magazine. That wasn't the big focus. Um, it was a concern, of course, advertising revenue, that is. But we were more concerned with helping the towns and businesses along Route 66 that we work with. There are We really do love our partners, and we do really do love these the towns and the destinations. They're very special. So for us, we've seen they were all struggling, of course, because they rely on tourism revenue. And as we said, nobody was going out, nobody was hitting the road. So they were really suffering. So we decided early on to keep them in the magazine, even though many of them couldn't actually pay for the advertising, but they still needed to be visible. Because when this pandemic was done, people were going to be hungry to hit the road, and we wanted our partners to be top of mind so that they were a major part of people's itinerary when they did. So we were really committed to helping them come out on the other side of this pandemic. So that was really our main focus. We had enough advertising revenue to stay alive, but our main focus was just really making sure that our partners came out okay. How do you balance your interests in Route 66 as well as the broader road tripping and vintage Americana themes? I mean, after all, there are quite a few more roads in the U.S. worthy of a long drive and plenty more kitschy roadside attractions to see. Mm. I remember when we first started the magazine and we were in Arcadia, Oklahoma at Pops and we were having dinner with a well-known writer along Route 66. And he said, um, you know, I love the magazine, but my big concern is that you guys are going to run out of stories to tell. We didn't really realize that he was potentially right <laughs> at that point. We were, it was still new. It was our first year. We were still quite excited about everything, and we were a bit naive about that. We've since been down the road eight times, inch to inch. And so we personally know the road and the people and the destinations very, very well. We own every single book there is to know that has come out. You know, we do the route every year. COVID slowed us down, of course, but otherwise we'll do it every year. We start off in Chicago and then head off to Santa Monica. One of the cool things for us, though, is that we always add new things on. So, for example, one year after we finished the route, we dropped down and we went to San Diego for a week. Another year, we went over to Western Texas and Alpine and Marfa and all of those places and hung out there and uh, went down to the Mexican border, El Paso and all these places. 
and really got to see Texas and that side of Texas that is close enough, but off the beaten path for the road. Uh, another time, uh, Northern California with the Redwoods and Confusion Hill and all of those places. So we tend, oh, another year we did uh, Nevada when we had finished. So we tend to mix in a lot of different places once we're done going west. And then we jump back on the route as we head east and redo it again. So we tend to love doing Route 66, and we tend to mix other things inside there so that we can continue to discover America for ourselves and other great stories that are in the same vein as Route 66. The quirky, the small towns, the roadside Americana, the historical ghost towns. And that really, for us, keeps it fresh. I've been fortunate to write for you throughout the life of this magazine. What is it you are looking for in potential writers? Are you looking for historians, sales brochure writers, storytellers, all the above? I would say that beyond anything, we're looking for storytellers, good storytellers. A lot of people know how to actually tell, but they don't know how to storytell. So we're an information-based society now. People can go online and they get news. They get YouTube channels, they get blogs, tell, 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 a lot of information. And so what they're learning how to do is how to share information, but they're not learning how to actually tell a story. I really feel like it's a lost art. And so for us, as a storytelling magazine, we're constantly looking for good writers who can tell a story. When they know how to tell a story, then we can actually teach them how to tell that story in our voice. But that's always going to be the most difficult thing to find, someone who can transition from telling to storytelling. Print magazines have been fortunate to stay popular uh, amid a very changing media landscape. How do you think the market will be in five years, ten years? Is this a field someone can still find a 30-year career in? You know, there's always going to be an audience for quality magazines that create an intelligent, creative blend of informative and entertaining there just is. Online news and stories are not geared for long-form journalism. I mean, as you said earlier, they're designed to be short, punchy, to the point. There's no time to carefully weave together an engaging article that really touches and moves the reader. You know, people always love the feel and experience of having a magazine that they can hold in their hands. One of the most common compliments that we receive from readers is that they love our paper quality, They even love how the magazine is mailed out in a personal envelope. Hard copy magazines are going to be around for years to come. I I don't think, I just don't think that the dot-com age is going to erase magazines. I don't even think it's going to erase newspapers. I think that it hit them hard, but I think that things will return. And I think that magazines are very safe, especially any ones that blend storytelling with information providing, you know, our, our sweet spot is very much to be informative, but entertaining. So we make sure that you enjoy it as you learn stuff along the way. And that's really our sweet spot. Other magazines, maybe Vanity Fair with their long form investigative articles, GQ with their same, um, you know, funny enough, Playboy used to be really famous for its investigative journalism. So those magazines are few and far between, but I think that Root and I think some of those magazines, like I just mentioned, 
they meet that need of blending the two. And I think that you can't get that online. So I think we're going to be around for a long time. You may not have as much opportunity 30 years from now, but they'll still be there. It takes guts to start a national publication at a time when readership of print is down. But there's still a lot of upside potential when you are a niche publication. You don't need millions of readers when your audience already has an established interest in the focal point, which in this case is road tripping, Americana, and in large part, going down Route 66. Brendan Matthews has done a superb job crafting his magazine such that it is a vehicle itself, albeit a storytelling one. While his pages tell the stories of people along the American roadside, he just told us his. And we had so much fun doing this phone interview, he in Toronto and me on the WT campus, that we decided to publish it in two parts. Join us for the second installment with Brendan Matthews when we dive deep into Route 66, that fabled road that runs from Chicago to Santa Monica and right through Amarillo along the way. It's in our backyard here and has always played a large role in our region's history, commerce, and culture. And too often, we take it for granted. Until next time. Blogs come in all shapes and sizes these days, and in more cases than not, it's just someone complaining about something. Rare Indeed is the blog that actually dives into the business and economics events of the day. Profspeak.com, the official blog of the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, is just that. With a staff of seasoned and knowledgeable professors who write a new installment each week, it's not over the top like the others. It's on top of things. We'll look for you down at the corner of thought leadership and societal impact. Check it out at Profspeak.com and stay on top too. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us at wtmu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. 
For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, Go Buffs! Buff Speak.